Because ultimately what it comes down to is like how you use that process, how you understand that process, how you use those tools. And most importantly, understanding the relationship between each step of the process and Mm -hmm. each tool with that step. And if you don't know that, then basically what you are is just a slower visual designer or a slower web designer because you're just taking longer to get to the same result, which is an uninformed design. Right. Hi, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff. I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. I'm Austin. I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, and I am a growth engineer here at HubSpot. So today we're going to be talking about growth tools and UX tools, what we personally use and what other people out there in the industry are using, why we think they're good, what are the differences between the two, and let you guys decide for yourself what you want to be using. Uh, So when we're thinking about growth tools and UX tools... Matt, before we jump into anything, why don't you tell us a little bit about your cruise that you were on? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is very important because Matt wasn't here for our last episode and Austin and I kind of just took over while Matt was off on vacation um, in, in what he would describe as the best vacation of his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> this, this feels strangely like a setup. Um, so I went on a cruise and I chose the cheapest cruise I could find because I'm just starting off my career and I couldn't afford anything fancy for my first vacation. Uh, And what I learned is when you go on vacation, do not choose the cheapest possible option out there because you will be confined to a very tight space with everyone else who chooses the cheapest things out there on the internet, which are not the nicest people. (laughs) Are you sure that it wasn't just like you got on a cargo ship and they just like put you on the below deck and they're like, cruise. And you're like, yeah, this doesn't look like a cruise. Would would I have had privacy on that? Because that sounds better. (laughs) That's gross. Where'd you go though? uh, Where'd you end up? So the islands were actually pretty awesome. They were islands? Uh, Yes. We went to the Bahamas and what we did every single time that we landed, we just went straight to the taxis and we just went to the complete other side of the islands. And every time we ended up having our own private beach, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Hmm. And one of the times we even had like wild donkeys and horses like walking up to us. Oh, nice. And stealing our food. And then yeah, we had to chase them away after. I mean, <laughs> we're just like, I want to be friends with you. And they're like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> we're here because we're hungry. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, let's get back on track. Thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So, so UXN growth tools. Yes. That is, that is what I was talking about. Um, so the first thing that I did, like preparing for this episode, is I went and did what anyone would do, which is Google UX tools and growth tools. Yeah. And something we're infuriated, experts. yeah, because <laughs> we're experts. Um, but something infuriated me about this when I did when I did the search went for uh, UX tools, in that every single listing that I went to, they just listed prototyping and UI tools, not UX tools. Things like Balsamic. Envision, Photoshop, Illustrator, Sketch. And I'm thinking, wait, this isn't the UX Austin's been talking about for the last however many episodes that we've done. Uh, Austin, what is up with this? Yeah. Um, So the... (laughs) 
that's that's a common a common issue where um, we'll have like major confusions between UX and UI, and you'll actually see a lot of designers that call themselves UX slash UI, UI designers, which is like that's basically like saying I'm a unicorn, mm-hmm. pay me, um, <laughs> and and those things don't exist. So uh, I think that the first thing that we can like the the first takeaway we can get from this is that you know. There's going there. There will be a lot of a, like a huge range of tools that you're going to use in a UX process, and they all serve different purposes for different deliverables. Mm-hmm. And UI is ultimately a deliverable of UX right. in the in in like a proper UX process. Of course, in different processes that that may not be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I think that's the best way to think of it is that like when you're seeing tools like balsamic and envision and everything like that um, they're only playing into a certain section of of the UX process um, I personally practice something called lean UX which is like quick iterative uh, research and and design cycles yeah. um, so you're using one of those tools pretty heavily then to kind of come up with the visual element of your experimentation right yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm using multiple of those tools, but they only fall into one section of the Lean UX process. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm going to talk about for, sure. for the UX portion of this, I think. Yeah. It's like, you know, what is, it, like from a very high level, you know, what is my UX process mm-hmm. and what are the tools that fall into that? And we can get into like where UX plays a role in that. How long do you think it's going to take for the internet to realize that difference between UI and UX? I think it's it's a um, I think that this is all part of the, the natural like maturation of UX as um, a profession and as like a respected industry because although it's technically been around for the last you know 15, 20 years, it's only really come into like uh, it's only gained a mainstream setting in the workplace within the last five to ten years, yeah. and in most people's minds, probably within the last two years. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. say like this is it's 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 new. It's, it's it, new. it needs some breaking yeah. in, and um, eventually, it I, yeah, it's like people. You, there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. Probably, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. You throw UI UX around, especially if that's your first um, exposure to it, and it comes in you know packaged with UI like. I'll admit that actually stuck with me for a while and until I started to really understand the difference and like started to practice some of this stuff, I then realized what the difference was. But if you're just kind of like loosely doing it, you're like, yeah, like I do some UX and some UI and I'm also a full stack engineer. I'm the only yeah. developer. Like yeah. those things kind of just blur together and you know, you're probably maybe a culprit of throwing that around um, if you if you never really needed to, to separate it out, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've always said, uh, or I haven't always said, but at least for the, the past year and a half, I've yeah. said that the easiest way to spot somebody that just began thinking about UX but wants to call themselves a UX designer mm-hmm. is somebody that cites the Medium article called the dribbleization of design. <laughs> because it's like just the, it's like the very surface level introductory stuff to like, oh, we should start thinking about the reasoning behind our designs and the impact that it has on the user. Right. And that's where you get a, a lot of this stuff where it's like UX and UI are you know, mm-hmm. like two separate things that exist together and, and everything instead of UI being a deliverable of UX. Right. Also, I think that just by nature, people get into UX because they love UI right. is what they find. There's not too many people out there in high school like, when I grow up, I, I want to collect yeah. data and analyze yeah. it. You know? Yeah, yeah. 
it's it's almost uh, by way of necessity right. with the the way that especially the tech space is going. Everything is data driven. Yeah. Um, and so that's actually something that I was. I have a few students that I'm mentoring with UX, and I was um, talking to one of my students yesterday, and she was asking me, you know, like what is what's the difference between UX and web design? And UX is basically just a rethinking of what web design should be. I, I would venture to say that UX is actually replacing traditional web design as like the proper way yeah. to, you know. Sounds like a process. Exactly. Case it's, in point, there's UX firms out there that you go to to design your website nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's like, that's specifically what they do. Whereas classically, perhaps they would have been called web design firms. Mm -hmm. But to kind of get into the meat of exactly what a right. UX process is and, you know, what kind of tools we're using, I think the first thing to know is that a lot of, pe a lot of people like Jeff, you had just said like UX is a process. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely true. Um, but UX is even more, more than being a process, UX is a way of thought. Right. Um, and I think that that's the, the, like a critical component that commonly gets left out of this. So the first thing that you have to understand is that like, I can give you a UX process, I can give you UX tools. This is actually, I gave the same speech when I was interviewing here at HubSpot. Nice. So I don't know, maybe this, is what, maybe this is what got me into the company. But I can give anybody uh, the process that I'm about to, to give. I can give anybody the tools that I'm about to give. And it like doesn't make me fear for my job as a UX designer at all. Because ultimately what it comes down to is like how you use that process, how you understand that process, how you use those tools. Right. And most importantly, understanding the relationship between each step of the process and mm -hmm. each tool with that step. Yeah. So like, okay, we started with, you know, we like in, in this portion of the project, we had sketches and then we moved to wireframes and then we moved to mockups and then we moved to, you know, um, a prototype and then we moved to a final product. So right. let's say that that's the process that you're going through. It's a matter of understanding why you started with sketches, what you learned from those sketches, what you then applied from that to the wireframes, why you needed to go to wireframes next and what the relationship was between those two. Right. And then just like duplicating that across all of those. And sometimes like in certain cases, you'll find, hey, maybe you go from sketches to mock-ups, mm -hmm. you know, and you skip the, the wireframes portion. So it's yeah. all, it's it's like knowing why all of those things are, are important, the, the um, relationship that they hold with each other and the value that they bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, then basically what you are is just a slower visual designer or a slower web designer yeah. because you're just taking longer and you're you're taking more steps to get to the same result which is an uninformed design right so it's it's a matter of understanding what those pieces are and why they're important and how they work together and applying them properly so i like to call like my ux process i call it a fluid lean UX process, meaning that everything that's in the process, you can, you know, like some in certain projects, you will be using certain parts of it and in other projects, you won't be using certain parts, like how I mentioned skipping over the wireframes piece. Right. So specifically with the lean UX process, it's iterative and it's fast. Instead of thinking of it as existing on a timeline, you think of it as like quick circles mm -hmm. or cycles, if you will. Um, that exist in three separate, like you, you can divide that circle up into three separate pieces, which would be think, make, 
check. Right. Okay. So under the think portion, you have strategy, research, and analysis. This is the lion's share of what's happening in the UX process. And when you see people, you know, like claiming to be UX, UI slash developers and everything, this is actually commonly the, the biggest part that they will actually leave out. And this is, uh, in my opinion, what defines it's UX. It's the most important part. It's the yeah. most important part. So strategy, competitive analysis, stakeholder interviews, brainstorming, KPI, definition, you have to define like what you're optimizing yeah, for. Absolutely. KPIs, if, if you're not familiar with that term, key performance indicators. So that's like what, you know, how are we going to determine that this design yeah. was successful? If you don't know what you're trying to research, then you're not going to be able to exactly. research it. Exactly. Um, value propositions, ecosystem maps, mood boards, storyboards, reviewing ex existing historical data. Under the research section, you may be performing surveys, uh, user interviews, card sorting, uh, maybe even some early user testing or A-B testing. Mm -hmm. uh, under the analysis portion, you're looking at your personas, scenarios, um, use cases, user flows. And so that's going to build all of the data to back up like where your design is going. You know, and then you can move into the make portion, and this is kind of this is where what you were talking about, Matt. Uh, this is where that stuff is going to play in. the The make portion can be split up into two uh, separate pieces. The first of which is design, and the second of which is implementation. So this is where you're actually building the product um, now that you already have the research. And so uh, the design portion may include taxonomies, sketches, wireframes, mockups, prototypes, additional user testing. And implementation is pretty straightforward. That's developing the code uh, with, with your developer. Um, QA testing, uh, launching a beta, or, or at the end, even like the, the, the public product. Mm -hmm. um, and then check, which is the, the final portion of your Lean UX cycle. Uh, can be split up into two parts as well. The first of which is measuring. So um, that contains analytics review, um, looking at how well your KPIs performed that you set at the beginning of the process, heat mapping, scroll mapping, additional user testing. And then iteration is the final piece. And arguably, again, one of the most important, and this is sort of what defines the Lean UX process. Um, so this includes bug fixes, taking qualitative and quantitative user feedback, uh, identifying existing pain points and reducing them, innovating with new features. Right. Uh, and ideally, um, like if we think of a waterfall model happening, you know, like first, like uh, on a timeline when it's like first we have our um, design requirements, then we have usually wireframes, then mockups, then we develop it, then we release it live and we forget about it. Right. And then if we take um, an agile development process, it's you're doing all of that really quick, and then um, you release it internally, and then you do all of that really quick again, right. and then release it internally until you finally have something that you're comfortable with launching live, mm -hmm. and then you release it and you get some feedback uh, from the users. And then if we look at a lean UX process, um, it's doing all of that stuff that I mentioned with agile, where it's like, all at once in, in an iteration, but instead of just releasing it internally, you're also releasing it live. So it, it may be imperfect, but yeah. what you're doing is you're getting live data, live user feedback yeah. that you can pull into it. It's like you're, and, you're embracing that small scale, where yeah. especially if you're making a lot of mistakes or a lot of assumptions early, um, it'll be good that you don't have a lot of traffic or a lot of audience to work with. It's not always true for everybody, but like sometimes like people are afraid to go live because they don't want to screwed up you know yeah. what I mean? but like if you if you 
realize that that's like a step in your process in your in like the growth like you know adding the growth piece in like at the early stage of growth like you have not a lot of people looking at your stuff or you know using your app or whatever and that iterative process using real user feedback is not nearly as scary as some people make it out to be mm -hmm. um, you're really not at risk at all um, like you're not going to regret throwing something that's like a piece of trash out there as long as you learn something and you can iterate from it quickly mm -hmm. and you know it's not a piece of trash by the time you've got it, somehow you've got a lot of users that are yes. looking at it. You know? So it's it's the concept of failing fast. Exactly. Where we're accepting that whenever you're building a product or a website, you're going to have failures. And what's going to set you apart and to what's going to help you attain success is by getting through those failures quickly right. and learning from them and improving upon them. And that's really what Lean UX seeks to do. Yeah. Um, so there, there are a lot of tools that, that play into that process. I'll just quickly go through some of the high-level ones, mm -hmm. and then I think it'd be good if we could just like contrast this with you know your all's perspective, like from from the growth angle, um, how do you grow a product versus from the UX angle? Right. And I think that like for, for for the UX process, ultimately what you get out of it is a product that is optimized for the user's goals and the user's needs and the business's goals and the business's needs. Right. So it's something that takes all of that feedback into account. Um, whether or not that's something that inherently grows a product could be up for debate. Like obviously if you create a product that solves for the business and solves for the user, that's going to be good. But does that completely follow a growth model? I think we'll have to kind of figure that one out. Right. Um, so for the tools that, that I wanted to talk about, I. Uh, again, just like really high level stuff for um, the the first portion, the think portion, like different research tools, uh, really simple, like Google Analytics. It's a free tool. It's super, super powerful way right. to gather quantitative data. And if like, you can now, install it out of the box and get some really good information. But you're it, saying that the think portion includes the analytics gathering. Right. I, I well, thought that it could have been in the check portion as well. So but yes, that's assuming that you already have existing data to look at. So the, I think the assumption here is that you're going into something like a redesign, or you're iterating, really and you depends. already have data to draw inspiration from. Yeah. So you can like you can see my personal process mm -hmm. at austinknight.com/process, uh, and you'll notice if you open up the the different sections of the process that actually analytics review exists at multiple different points of the process. Right. And that's going back to what I was saying with the fact that this is a fluid process. So sometimes you'll perform an analytics review at the beginning and at the end or whatever. It can be at different points, and that's largely for this particular piece going to be dependent on whether or not you even have historical data. Right. Um, so Google Analytics is great. You can collect a lot of good data out of the box just installing the code on your site. If you create a custom implementation where you're putting different events and goal funnel tracking and everything on your site, that's even better. Uh, Mixpanel is excellent. Yeah. Jeff could talk a lot more about that than I could, but it's that's a fully custom implementation. Kissmetrics is another is a, it's a really um, intuitive tool that basically helps you to build more robust. Google Analytics funnels. Right. That's like the the only way that I can explain it. Yeah, Google Analytics is not great at funnels. That's like mm -hmm. they do it, but it's it's really hard to do. And like Mixpanel and Kissmetrics and most of these other like consumer metrics tools, um, they tend to do funnels really well mm -hmm. um, because they're easier to build and they make more sense. But it's also easy for you to screw them up. I won't talk about that now. That's like a whole nother thing. Yeah. It's like Mixpanel like downfall, but like um, it's 
Yeah, it's like it, I, it, they like solve what Google Analytics doesn't do that well. Yeah, and I think that you touched on something actually that's uh, that's really important with all of this data collection is that this is this is where like the true value of the UX designer can really come out right. is in interpreting the data because you're never going to collect perfect data. There's oh even you know qualitative or quantitative. There's always going to be outside factors affecting that. Um, and so it's up to the UX designer to know what like what that data is telling them and how you you translate that into a design. This is maybe a little bit off topic, but I have to ask it right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you said that data is never perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is that you, as the person who collected the data and instrumented the collection of it and whatnot, know why it's imperfect. And something I've always wondered is that is just so attached to whoever has that context. What if you were to leave yeah. for another job and someone else came in here and looked at that data? It's that's um, it's a huge issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the the best thing that I can say is this is actually like, uh, you know, outside of all of this stuff that I do talking about UX when I talk about company culture, mm -hmm. um, which is a huge theme here at HubSpot, like one of the the biggest things that I cite is like for the growth of a, of a business, especially a startup, retaining your, your talented and highly contributing uh, and critical employees is so important. Mm -hmm. um, so really like my, my advice there would be the strategy is like, if you're going to hire a UX designer, try to hire a good one and then retain them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, create create an environment that's going to keep them around because then you won't really have to deal with the situation where right. like they're leaving and somebody else has to interpret the data. Because like I could I could go into different ways that I've tried to set people up when when I've left jobs uh, and I've had to transfer over data. But honestly, that whole process is inherently flawed, mm -hmm. and you you do have uh, you take a hit. Right, it's when that it's happens. just so difficult to deal with by nature. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, going going back to the again uh, some some goals and, and research data collection tools, Crazy Egg and Hotjar are great for um, like it's basically what they'll give you is a blend of quantitative and qualitative yeah. data, but in a quantitative format. I hadn't even heard of them. You you showed me those um, like very close to before we were recording this, and I checked those mm -hmm. out. Never heard of them. They're they're awesome. They look really cool. Yeah. So Crazy Egg is as a heat mapping and scroll mapping tool. It does a couple extra things, but that's basically what it is. Heat mapping is tracking the clicks on a page and putting them into like a heat map. I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's literally <laughs> it's just like a visual overlay of yeah. based on color. You know, it's like mm -hmm. it looks like topography. Yeah. And Hotjar does the same thing. It has heat mapping, um, but it also does live screen recording, and um, that's super useful. You can record several users, like several hundred users, all at once. That's what we do here at HubSpot, yep. and it segments them out. And um, what I like about that is that it's as it's as close to perfect data as you're going to get from the like the blended quantitative and qualitative perspective because the user actually doesn't know that they're being recorded. Right. And you can say like, okay, I see a big drop off rate on my products page. Let's watch somebody that went from the homepage to the products page and then left. Right. And it's just their mouse. It's like a screen recording, yes. right? It's yeah. So recording. you can't really like see their face or like hear what they're saying or anything <laughs> like that. Which is sometimes important. That's like why you do in session, like, you know, sitting near somebody or whatever. It's not mm -hmm. as great. 
um but you do get something i love i always wish that i could like turn on their microphone and hear them like mutter to yeah. themselves because like sometimes they're like how do i do this because like there's your rant. like that's what you need to work yes. with um yeah. but you don't get that with screen recording unfortunately yeah um which one was the screen recording hot jar that's hot jar does that but yeah. there's also some other screen a lot recording of other tools. tools i can talk yeah. about but hot jar does the on-site screen recording so it's like just recording live users. They also do like NPS surveys that will pop up on the site, um, polls and, and stuff like that. So a lot of, a lot of like Hotjar is a very useful tool mm -hmm. and it's actually really, really affordable because it's brand new. Um, so Crazy Egg is expensive. That's that's an enterprise tool. It was created by Neil Patel, so we, we all know. I can't believe an enterprise tool is called Crazy Egg. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you mean to say that? <laughs> that was not planned. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Hotjar is Hotjar is a new tool. Um, there were a lot of concerns around it, and I actually um, one of my concerns was like that uh, Crazy Egg when it heat maps it, it it tracks every single user. So if you say I want a hundred thousand users uh, on the homepage, then it will get every, you know starting from the time that you push it live, yeah. it'll get every single user up to 100,000. Uh, Hotjar samples users, so it won't get every single user, it just randomly picks them up. So I was worried that the data may be inconsistent and that was a, actually a piece of criticism around when the product went live. And well, we at HubSpot we have Crazy Egg and Hotjar right. and a site with a ton of traffic, so I actually tested that um, and I ran both of them at the same time with 100,000 users on the HubSpot.com homepage. And um, it was the, I got the back the same results. Wow. So that I'm I'm pretty confident in the Hotjar tool, and you can. But it was at a hundred hundred thousand though, right? A hundred thousand. Like have a sample size that large, for a lot yeah. of reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Hotjar is it's something like thirty bucks a month for their pro plan. Mm -hmm. So um, and for comparison, I think Crazy Egg is. Uh, you know, it's somewhere around 250 a month or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I would say that a screen recorder like Hotjar or mm -hmm. something like Full Story is an absolute must. And the way that it works is actually really, really cool. They don't actually video record your screen. I think there's legal implications to doing that. Right. They actually record all the manipulations that a yeah. user makes to the DOM of the page that they're on and records every single event and then creates a playback of it. And yeah. that gives you something really powerful for the quantitative side as well. I actually find when I use, because I use Full Story instead of Hotjar, mm -hmm. I find I use it more for quantitative than qualitative data fetching, because what it essentially does, if you do, if you want to be lazy and not like add events in Mixpanel for like every single button click, uh, you can actually just go back into Full Story or Hotjar and search for give me every single user who has clicked the button that has this class, and it'll mm -hmm. tell you fifty thousand people have clicked this or fifty whatever mm -hmm. it is. Here they are in aggregate. Here's what they did in aggregate, and then you can click in and watch the individual sessions to see yeah. what they did afterward. Yeah, yep. Um, for A-B testing, Optimizely is an excellent tool. It's free. Um, you can also A-B test in HubSpot. What up? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so those those are a few few tools that I really like. Uh, another research, a few research tools that I want to give some shout outs to. Gliffy is great for diagramming stuff. Xmind is great for mind mapping. Optimal Workshop is a tool suite that helps you to do things like uh, card sorting um, and, and verifying different navigation and categorization structures mm -hmm. over the web, which is classically that was something that you would have to do in person, which is a pain. Right. Um, for wireframes, 
So getting into now getting into the make section of the process, really, uh, I I always just start off like at a high level by re uh, recommending balsamic or Axure. Uh, balsamic for somebody that's starting and doesn't really know how to wireframe, and Axure for somebody that's looking for a much more robust tool. Mm -hmm. Omnigraphel is also a good option. That wasn't necessarily started as a UX tool. It was just a graphing tool that UX designers realized could be a, a great wireframing tool. Yeah. Um, for mockups, Sketch is like the go-to. Yeah. Uh, it's Absolute it's own. Yeah. It's only available on the Mac. Yeah. Um, so, so that's. <laughs> but most designers yeah. use Mac. Yeah, let's be honest. Yes. So. Yeah. And then for more high fidelity, like Sketch is a good um, bridge between uh, like a wireframe and a yeah. high fidelity. Well, you can do you can do both of them. It, yeah. All it is the the only thing about Sketch, like the big difference between Sketch and say Photoshop, is Sketch is like Illustrator, but like scaled way down to do like just like Rapid. easy vector stuff yeah. and like. Um, and then you can pump it. I think you can export some stuff to CSS or like yes. it has a, it's, it's built for uh, like web development. Um, but you can, you could design, I mean, we actually have designers here that have designed whole products using Sketch. Um, and we just like cut pieces out of it and use those as, you know, images or like use the icon um, designs or things like that. Like Sketch is like fully professional, like you can do every level of design. Yeah, so few things about Sketch that are pretty awesome. Um, Sketch supports a pattern library, so you can really speed up your, your design yeah. uh, with that. And if you're in a larger organization like HubSpot, um, that's, it's, that's a great way to apply like a consistent uniform style guide to your product. Um, Sketch is optimized for the web, so it won't let the designer create some type of crazy gradient that the developer can't code. And Sketch also is vector-based, as Jeff mentioned. Um, so it's really scalable and, and high quality. Yeah. Um, and then the yeah the other mock-up tool for like super high fidelity stuff is Photoshop. Like it's just a right. tried and true, you know, awesome industry standard. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Some some designers use Illustrator. I personally don't, you know, because I like my my suite is pretty set uh, with with a mixture of Sketch and Photoshop. If I'm even doing high fidelity stuff, that's actually usually thrown over to one of our visual designers, which goes mm -hmm. back to what Matt was saying about, you know, UX versus UI. That's in, in HubSpot, and quite frankly, in any team that I will ever choose to work with, um, visual design will be treated as a, you know, um, a separate, like, piece in that process, just like development is. You've got, like, you know, like, your, your, your four core components to the team, like project manager, uh, UX designer, developer and visual designer. And that's that's exactly my team. Um, for prototypes, I use InVision. I think everybody does. That's yeah. that's like everybody's so hot on that tool right now. Um, and it, it's great. So uh, that's, that's, that's where that one ends. Uh, for user testing, so like if you're wanting to get that qualitative feedback after you have a good wireframe or mockup or a prototype or whatever, usertesting.com is great for remote unmoderated testing. They actually have a remote moderated feature that you can get with their enterprise packages, but you've got to spend like, I think it's, it's either 35 grand or 50 grand a wow. year to get that. So, which we have. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say, well, enterprise. Yeah. You got the mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. Um, Silverback is a good. Uh, yeah. I like, just uh, I just checked that out today, and apparently they pulled it off the App Store though. 
right yeah, now. Yeah, so they're, it's it's in a weird place right now. Yeah. <laughs> Silverback's in a weird place. They were going between version two and version three, Ooh. and I don't I don't completely know what happened. I have the old version on yeah. my computer. So basically, Silverback is taking the user testing platform, which is a screen recorder, like any user testing, you're, you're taking a user and they're using the product and it's recording their screen, sometimes recording their face and also recording their narration. They're telling you what you're, they're thinking and everything. So like Jeff, when we were talking about Hotjar and you were saying, hey, it'd be nice to know like what these people were actually saying when they're messing around with those screen recordings and everything. Right. Usertesting.com is your, your opportunity to know that. It's just the only caveat is that the person knows that they're being recorded. Right. So. Um, it's not quite as perfect, but uh, so usertesting.com would be remote, meaning that the user isn't physically there with you when you're testing it. Silverback is a solution for in-person moderated testing where the user is there with you and you can uh, moderate their tests. So you're saying like if, if they get off track, you can say, oh, like let's check this out. Or if you have a question, you can ask them in real time. Mm -hmm. um, I also use a, a Chrome app Call or a Chrome extension called Screencastify, mm -hmm. and it just records the screen and uh, uses the webcam to record the user's face and their voice and everything. So basically, the same thing as Silverback, but not quite as robust. Yeah. It's what I like about it is that it's super easy to set up. Yeah. Now, is that like individual? Does it record your screen mm -hmm. and you? Um, and it's like just they have to like record and then send it manually, right? Is that well, how it works? Well, I would use Screencastify for in-person moderated gotcha. tasks. So you would do that to record, to remember, like later after yes. they've done it? Yes, oh yeah, whenever you're doing an in-person test, you always wanna record it. Right. You don't wanna just be sitting there taking notes because like the ultimately with any user test, you're going to be observing two things. Uh, um, like what the user is doing, so where their eyes are, mm -hmm. where their mouse is, where, where they're focusing on the page, and what they're saying. Right. Um, and commonly, those two things will contradict themselves. Right. And what you'll find is that more, more often than not, what the user does will be more accurate than what the user says right. in terms of like what actually needs. Which to be gives done. you more confidence in watching screen or like the screen recordings from uh, like full story that doesn't mm -hmm. have any sound or any you yeah. know actual human attached to it besides yes. that recording. Yes. Um, and then a uh, final user testing tool at a high level that I like to use is called Usability Hub. And that, again, um, that's a suite of tools that bridges the gap between qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. And a, like a final shout out that I want to put out there is for this awesome small tool called Paper Kit. And it's just... I did see that. It, it, all, all that it is is like a PDF download of graph paper. Yeah. Um, but you can like set the different dimensions and stuff like that. And it's awesome because whenever you're wanting to do sketches and you want to like standardize them for your product, you, you can just, um, I used paper kit to get the, the graph size that I wanted for the, the different sizes of paper that we use here. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I overlaid a drawing of like a Chrome browser yeah. on it so that people could see what it would actually look like in the browser. Um, you wouldn't happen to know off the top of your head where to get. I was, that was going to be my next question. Was like, mm -hmm. you know, where to get those those browser pictures or like monitors or like a laptop. You know, things that you would overlay mm -hmm. on top to do like like really high level type of drawings. You know, you're not going to do yeah. high fidelity on uh, those. But right. I mean, it's a it's a Google search away. Yeah. It's like you, can just you mean them. you don't make them yourself every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> no. It's got like um, a stencil. <laughs> yes, it's that's basically like you could Google um, 
Chrome Chrome browser interface PSD, you know, and import the paperkit file into Photoshop and then overlay the Chrome browser in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And I actually um, on on my website I have like pre-made ones that people yeah. can download, but it's like so easy to make yourself. Yeah. Um, and and that's not like the browser doesn't have to be like the perfect dimensions for what it would be in an actual viewport because obviously that's going to vary. Right. So you don't want to design for the fold or anything stupid like that. Rather, it's just like having the browser there helps the other stakeholders on the project to visualize what it's actually going to look like in its end context. Right. So that's that's kind of the the UX process and tools. Um, at a very high level from my perspective. Like if somebody came to me and like, it was the first time that they asked like, you know, I wanna get into UX, what are like the, the, the quick things that I need to know? I think that that pretty much covers it. Obviously there's like much more to it when you actually get into the depth and you like go down the UX rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that's a, that's a good starting point to get yourself thinking about like, okay, how does the UX process work? What are generally like the, the simple tools that are right. being used at a high level? Yeah, I'm like, I'm one of those people that doesn't like to use a lot of different tools. So like as you go down that rabbit hole, it doesn't necessarily mean like for me specifically, I'm not adding more tools, you know? Like I kind of cover like if you take that that cycle outline of like the think make check mm -hmm. you know i've i've got one or two tools that fit into each one and then i basically have a process that is being tweaked you know and like maybe the tool stays the same but the way that i use it is going to change over time like mm -hmm. here's a good one like a lot of mine centers around like google docs you know and like what i'm doing with those documents and what i'm writing up and you know what i'm forcing myself to to add every single time um, mm -hmm. that's what evolves as I get deeper and deeper into, into the process and things get um, kind of ironed out, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess it's one of those things that's like shopping for a house. It's like, try some stuff out, use it, mm -hmm. see which ones you like, and then uh, stick with those. And as you, as you get comfortable with them, just like those are your go-tos. Like, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, or just like ask somebody because there's usually like here at HubSpot, like, there's just a lot of recommended tools that people tend to use like across the company. And it's like, if those have been widely adopted, not only can you get up to speed quickly because you've got someone else, but like you can probably even nab a free copy if it's a paid. I thing. feel like that's really important with anything that you adopt. Right. It's just make sure there's people using it because like for, I use, for example, whenever people ask me like, what CMS should I use my, for my website? Right. I always tell them WordPress simply because not that WordPress is the best built CMS out there, but everyone uses WordPress. There's there's a massive community behind it, and if there's something specific that they want to do, they just have to search for it, and they're gonna find a thousand articles right. on people that tell them exactly how to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how does this? Uh, I know that the title of this podcast was UX and Growth Tools. <laughs> um, why don't we talk a little bit about what would be a growth tool in this situation? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, Matt, you, sure. you are dying I'll, to talk about that. I'll, I'll take it from there. So I think that growth and UX tools are very similar inherently because the growth process and the lean UX process is often detailed are also very similar. It, any, any process or framework is going to follow that same think, make, and then I think you said analyze. Check. check. Think, make, check process. Almost any process is going to follow that for the most part. And growth is no different. Like with growth, we're looking at what we want to do and we do it and then we see how it performed and then we iterate, right? That's just what we do with quantitative growth experiments. Um, a big part of the way that we do experiments here, I'm, I'm just gonna throw this out before I, I dive into like the specific tools that we use. 
uh, is an experimentation framework. So we use the scientific method. Uh, yes, you heard that right. The, the scientific method, the <laughs> one that you used in like seventh grade science class. Why where, would you do that, Matt? Yeah, to, to, uh, to write down your objective, your hypothesis, experiment results, design, all that kind of thing. And the big reason that we do it is not only just to document our learnings. We talked about how it's important in an iterative process to actually learn and fail fast. Right. You want to you make sure you don't lose that learning that you have. Um, but also to lay out your assumptions before you actually run an experiment. I think that's a really impe- important piece of that puzzle. Because if you write out, my objective is to learn X, and my hypothesis is that it will happen because Y, there you go. Yeah. Like you, you're already saying like what you think is going to happen. And then if that doesn't happen, right. you have just the data to look at. It's kind of like the important thing that uh, Austin brought up earlier is like defining your KPIs. Like this is the same thing. It's like every time you do any sort of experiment, you got to kind of like, what are you looking for? And if it doesn't happen, like you wrote it down, don't change it. Like, you know, it either failed or it didn't. Or like if something completely different happened, you know, there's either your experiment didn't go as planned and you can throw it away mm-hmm. or uh, you, you weren't clear enough. Um, and so just being like very specific about what you're trying to do and then doing that or watching it not happen, you know, that'll help you learn very quickly. Yep. Um, so do you have any like specific tools? Like um, like what, <laughs> if, like in terms of a growth thing where like growth and UX are tied really close together, like mm-hmm. are there any different tools, like something that completely falls under growth? Um. I think with growth, it comes down to that you need hooks in the growth process more so than tools, and there are certain tools that can help you with those hooks. And what I mean by that is there's things like virality and retention and whatnot that feed into the growth process, and you need hooks in there to uh, better your retention and better your virality metrics to constantly gather feedback from, et cetera. Um, And a lot of the time, honestly, those are things that you need to implement yourself, and there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Uh, I think another important part of growth, though, is that you're looking at um, a lot of quantitative and qualitative data in kind of a different mindset than you look at with UX. You're, you're kind of like treating your users as lab rats in a way, yeah. and you're more apt to like put something out there just to see what happens, and you not entirely, like you don't care a whole lot if it's a good experience. Right. I think that that's like a critical difference. Um, and one of the things that we do for like qualitative data for the most part we don't do user testing, like like Austin was talking about. We instead will have a feedback cycle, which is things like Snap Engage and Olark and different like contact forms that users, wherever they are in our funnels, they can talk to us and let us know whatever is on their mind. Um, and then as far as quantitative tools, I think it comes down to three things. You need a way to split traffic fairly for any quantitative experiment. Uh, and you need a way to retrieve and store large amounts of data quickly and flexibly because you know, you don't want to like tie yourself to something very specific with your events that you're tracking. And then you have this super specific use case where it just doesn't work. Right. Uh, and then lastly, you need a way to analyze that data. And it, it's very similar to the, the UX process as Austin was talking about. That's where really like... The, the big question comes up like, are you the kind of person who should be doing this? Because like you need to be able to really figure out what's going on and read between the lines of that data as you're analyzing it. Uh, so I think with those analysis tools, like 
it's one of those things where I'll say like use as many as possible because yeah. you want as many ways and different angles. It doesn't to hurt look to double check. Like right, we're still using right now. Like on my team, we're using two. We're using two separate tools, um, and we'll double check the data against those tools just to make sure that one didn't like. If something looks bad, it's got to look bad everywhere, or mm -hmm. else we're not gonna we're mm -hmm. not gonna accept it. You know, um, one of which is like mixed panel. You know, um, and the other one. Um, we just have like our own like fun little double checker that we use. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just helps us out. Um, but you can do that with, you can do it against, I've done it against Mixpanel and Google Analytics before, which is tough. The Google Analytics tends to throw some weird numbers out. I don't know what their processing time is with the events, but um, as long as they're within the ballpark, a lot of times they don't match exactly, but they're like super close, you know? Right. And like, that's all that matters. Um, right. And then uh, what about your traffic splitting tool? What? So traffic splitting, I think, is interesting. I, there's there's different levels that you can look at traffic splitting tools. Uh, either you just want to do it really simply with something like Google Content Experiment, which is part of the Google Analytics suite, and so it's free out of the box. Like If you just want to do A-B testing between pages, I wholeheartedly recommend that if you don't want to pay money. Um, then you have more advanced things like HubSpot. You can use things like Optimizely, which kind of like packages a lot of those tools all in, in one. But if you need to do something more on a deeper level within your application, um, you need to use something that you can use kind of as a programming language, right? And the best tool that I found for that is not doing a math.random. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tool called Planout uh, from Facebook. You can find it at facebook.github.io slash planout. They have a lot of awesome tools in there. Uh, and it's an algorithmic tool in which you feed it a ID, let's say of a user, and it will run it through an algorithm that's going to say, for this ID, they're either in branch A or B, or some multivariate. Um, and it will always persist through that algorithm. And so you can do a lot of really cool things, like I'm going to persist that this user's in this state in my experiment, I'm going to collect this data for them all the way through their life cycle. Um, so you can do a lot of very advanced things with that. Yeah, Planet's super cool. I've used that too. It's really fair. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually, you know what? We got to wrap it up right here. Um, sorry, I didn't realize how long we've been talking about this. Um, I think that there's more that we can talk about in terms of the growth side. I know we kind of hung around on the UX side for a little while in this podcast, but. Um, it's okay. They're really similar, to be honest. Like, yeah. for the most part, we're going to go into like, then we use Mixpanel to collect our data and yeah, then to like true. analyze it. And yeah, stuff, one yeah. of the things that I, I think um, I may touch on somewhere else in a different medium, maybe. Um, is like how growth and acquisition play in with these tools because um, a whole section about growth is like getting more of your users in and then you know the UX starts to play a part when you're like hoping to convert or retain and like um, retention especially um, but there are some acquisition tools out there that you can use to, mm -hmm. to help you um, kind of get people into these funnels so you can start testing and things like that um, but that's all the time we have for today um, if you have any questions, you can find all of our contact information at uxandgrowth.com. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, and we're also going to be posting the, this list of tools on our website. So if you missed any of them or you want the links to them, go check that out. We're going to put a blog post up for you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.